welcome to episode 21 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hi there, Steve. There are many ways in which we go about looking for people to appear on the show. The idea that we want to speak with people from across the spectrum of success and experience allows us to reach out to anyone who has a demo to share and a story to tell. Our guest today, Dale Hibbert, is mostly known as being the original bass player in The Smiths. Having recorded and played on their first two demos, that in itself would have been reason enough to reach out to him. But Dale has written a fantastic memoir, Boy Interrupted. And after reading it, it was clear that his time in The Smiths, whilst important, was just a small part of his life. And that music has been significant for him in so many ways, from a young age to present day. Ben, this is one of those occasions where your expectations are confounded and something greater and more important emerges. Completely. I think of all of all the conversations we've had so far, Steve, it really challenged the assumptions that both of us made about this individual coming on the show. Um, I certainly had found, um, whilst I'd enjoyed Boy Interrupted, and I did kind of read through it in depth a couple of times, it's a challenging read. You know, it's, it's a difficult day or story has, you know, loss and bereavement and some struggles around you know around other areas of his life and then the the central crux of this you know part of the story around the, his time in the smiths and it um you know it would have been easy and i think i had made the assumption that that had be, become a sort of life-defining um moment in his life and um, at the end of the conversation throughout the conversation it it wasn't that way at all you know, it was very much the way he was able to reflect on it being a moment in time, you know, and how, how, and actually looking back at it afterwards, how could you have predicted what that band would have gone on to, to become? Yeah. You know, and he had, and he already had a different path mapped out anyway, Yeah, you know, and, uh, and the story, the story went from there really, didn't it? It did. It did. And the thing that came through strongest for me and was reinforced in the conversation is the powerful role that music's played for Dale. And as he, he says himself, he's, it's been his saviour on more than one occasion. I suppose people might come to this with ideas about what Dale's experiences with the Smiths were like, as, as you mentioned. And there are a number of times in the book where he seeks to sort of redress and correct assumptions and falsehoods around that period of his life. I suppose it's easy to be kind of reductive or a bit tabloid about what that must have been like for him, but he speaks about that time in such a measured way, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who said, who said like, um, okay, this person, this individual was in the Smiths, so they were unceremoniously thrown out, and you think, well, well what must that have been like, mm. being thrown out of the Smiths? Well, when he was in the Smiths, they were, you know, three songs old, Morrissey and Ma had yet to be proved to be uh, the songwriting partnership that they came to be and, and were held, you know, there was no publicity around them. So, yeah, it was a completely different moment in time. You know, it's a completely different snapshot, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, yeah. And the music he shared with us is from his first band, Freudian Slip. And, and that gave us a chance to talk about the music scene in Manchester in the late 70s and early 80s with someone who was involved in it and lived through what was a really important time in British music. And that was really exciting, I think. Yeah, when I was going over the notes, um, you know, reviewing the conversations and that, the positivity that Dale brought to conversations around this, around Manchester Musicians Collective, around the whole kind of ethos of punk 
uh, both the excitement around music and how that opened out possibilities for people who had been denied opportunities prior to that. Um, and then the kind of community that evolved throughout some of the, his experiences as a recording engineer and even some reflections on the fact that, um, you know, around people being able to be on, sign onto the dole and how that affected the possibility for people to become creative in all sorts of different fields. It was just, um, he was very, very passionate about all of those aspects of his life, wasn't he? Clearly, he'd put a lot into a lot into it as well. Well, Dale's book, much like as, the same as Joe Thompson's book, was published by Pomona Press, and it's really worth seeking out. I mean, if you're interested in that period of uh, British musical history and the scene in Manchester, the way that he writes about that time is so evocative. And you know, if you've if you've read the the um any of the joy division books or possibly even you know the 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 books that the members of the smiths have written or whatever you know that at that period of time in manchester is so important for music and his writing is as good as any that i've read about that time yeah he was he was in amongst it wasn't it and mm. the, and he speaks passionately about lots of those the bands and about how the how the scene evolved and there's some great kind of setting about you know his his reflections on the things that were necessary for 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 that scene to to become you know to f become fully formed and how it might potentially not have happened yeah you know yeah, yeah. and he doesn't overstate his role in it which is often what happens when people talk about that time and and their, and their place within it <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. Thanks so much to Dale for coming on the show. I'm sure he gets a lot of requests for his time. So we're delighted that he agreed to come on the podcast and speak with us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do run over to Apple Podcasts HQ with five stars hidden inside some freshly made rock cakes. Just leave them at reception and they'll know what to do. Pop a note in that says how much you like the show if you want. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, let's go over to episode 21 of Songs from a Padded Envelope with Dale Hibbert. Yeah, my name's Dale Hibbert, and the song is called Hideaway, and it was by my first band, first band I was in, called Freudian Slip. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Dale. Ben and I have both read your fascinating book, Boy Interrupted, and there's a really strong thread that runs through it around how music's been a significant presence and influence throughout your life. And when did music first have a real impact on you? I think when I was very young very very young in fact there's the original cover for the book was me with a, a an old Danzig um record player when i must have been about three years old uh, <laughs> touching the record player in that in that fashion the i think the first single i ever bought uh, i know people always go on about this was the uh, the ballad of bonnie and clyde i don't know if you remember that very very old song but following up from that my father played a lot of uh, Billie Holiday and Nina Simone, Simon and Garfunkel. And I, I heard it all the time. I was really, it really moved me, that kind of music. Um, I was a big Elton John fan back in the day. And I saw him at the the Salford Hard Rock when I was about nine years old. It's now, it's wow. now, the, it's now the Salford B&Q, but it was, it was called the Hard Rock. <laughs> um, and it was... Yeah, uh, live music was just phenomenal for me. Um, How did you get to be nine years old at an Elton John concert? 
Oh, my dad took me. Uh, my dad was really good like that. He took me. And he also took me to see Tommy. And I think I was only about 11 years old. And that was a, quite a quite a raunchy film. But again, I think I wanted to see it because Elton John was in it. But again, it's one of those films that it, it, it changes your perception. It really does. Um, so, yeah, he took me to see that as well. Um, but he would take me to concerts whenever I wanted to go. It was It was quite reasonable like that. And what was the first music that you would say you discovered for yourself then, Dale? Oh, I would say it's hard to say you discover it for yourself because you, you, you're in peer groups all the time. The, the breakaway from from my father's music um, would have been Black Sabbath, Genesis, who again I, I saw in concert, yes. I saw at Bingley Hall and stuff. It's weird how you remember these things because it's so long ago. So yeah, that that kind of is it called prog rock nowadays? That, that Genesis. Uh, I saw Peter Gabriel at the Manchester Apollo. But truly, for myself, I would say it would be when I started playing. Uh, when I started with the Manchester Collective, and you were play. They always had gigs where there was three of you on, and bands like Joy Division, uh, The Fall. That's when I, it, it became, I took ownership of, of the music that I wanted to listen to and, and nobody had kind of introduced me to that apart from the people that were actually in the bands. The idea of seeing Joy Division and the fall, the, the early incarnations of The Fall as well, I mean, because I, I, love, I love The Fall and saw them a lot, but that uh, the, those sort of formative years for them has got such, has such a powerful idea about yeah. at, at, the, at the time. You know, did it feel like, particularly with Joy Division, I guess, did it feel like you were witnessing something different and special? No, no, because it was, it was part of life. It was part of what you did. Because obviously I've mentioned those bands. And there were other, uh, another band that I really liked at the time was called Carmel. I, th I think Carmel are actually still going. But because you're all playing together, and, and those might be three bands that I've, I've selected, but there were 40 or 50 bands. So it was all melded into, you know, some bands you just, it wasn't your type of music, but you still played along with them. There was no real, I mean, even with with Morrissey, there's, there's no real sense of of being part of something which would go down in history. How did how did they how did the music fit into in terms of the, in terms of Manchester in terms of the city was it an integral characteristic of that or how did you see that it was yeah it was part of being in Manchester it really was and I say this to um, I think it's somebody you know Mark who, who's uh, who's the editor of my book there was there was definitely a north south divide you, you didn't think of bands from Rochdale and Middleton. As being the same as bands from from South Manchester, from Didsbury, from Burnage, it was completely different. It, they were like foreigners. It was weird. It, you all, I, I suppose it was because I lived in South Manchester that you always thought that the core of music was actually South Manchester. And it, it, it sounds really kind of arrogant and, and egotistical now, but that's kind of the impression you got because most people did live uh, in, in Withington or, or Burnage or Didsbury. Um, so that's that's kind of where, where my music was based. Like North Manchester music was quite, was quite a bit different. Uh, it was a, had a different feel to it, even though there was only five miles between us, to be to be frank. 
Well, just mentioning the Manchester Musicians Collective, how um, th there's like a DIY ethos that underpinned that. It'd be great to hear a little bit more about the about that collective. What uh, what was your involvement in it, and and how did it kind of function? Um, it functioned. We reg we met regularly, um, and we gigged regularly. I think it was every oh, I can't remember, possibly Sunday night or a Thursday night. There were three bands always on at the Cypress Tavern, which was the the first place that we used to play at. And then I think we did some stints at the Band on the Wall as well. And it was just anybody could join, anybody could come along. Um, I think they actually made up a position for me, which was called convener. And I had no idea what a convener was. <laughs> I, don't really know. I think they just felt sorry for me. So they gave me this title so that I could be on the committee um, because I shared a flat with the secretary. Of, of, uh, who, again, it, it sounds like it was a grand thing, but it, she had the title of secretary anyway. Um, and it was just, it was just one of those things that, that you look forward to it every week you, you, and you look forward to the the meetings every week because you'd you'd meet new bands you'd meet new people we're all grasping for a way out of the demo circuit and you know trying to find a way to make the next step because it it was a bubble but it was a very few bands that broke out of that bubble and when you're in it at the time, you, you couldn't really see why they broke out. Like I mentioned Carmel before, and, and they seemed to break out. They seemed to suddenly start doing... I, could, I mean, the first thing was, if you got a gig in London, that, that was it. As far as you were concerned, you'd made it. You know that, 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 um, But most of us were stuck playing around Manchester City Centre. Um, I, I thought, although we played uh, St. Peter's Square, there was the council did get involved, and I think it was, they were quite helpful at the time. Uh, and I used to put on a yearly gig in St. Peter's Square, uh, kind of outside type thing, which was, was nice to do. When you look back on that time with Manchester Musicians Collective now, do you think it gave you a real sort of kickstart, a real kind of leg up into into the music world of music? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it wouldn't have been easy with, without the Manchester Musicians Collective. Because again, even though they, they had their own gigs, they did open like little doorways to, to to play in at other pubs or other other venues around Manchester, um, and of course you, you met other people that might have said, "Oh, I'm playing here. Do you want to support? Do you, do you want to do you want to play the support line? Do you want to come with us?" I think without that, I don't. I can't see the. I can't. I really can't see the Manchester music scene developing the way it did without the Manchester Music Collective, and even though it. It had disappeared by the time bands like Smith saw it even further on. You've got Oasis and Storm. It, it, it totally gone by then. But I think without that, it it, it just wouldn't it, it wouldn't have evolved the way it did. It really was the, the the mainstay of 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 how the music would develop within Manchester in, in later years. So the demo you've shared with us is from your band Freudian Slip, and you've said that that's the first band that uh, that you were in. Um, how much music making had you done prior to forming Freudian Slip? Very little, very little. I'd messed around on bass for a bit, um, and I had, yeah, I had a, a like a trial with um, Duritical, 
had a child with them and it wasn't good enough. I really didn't fit in with them. Um, but really, no, no. I mean, with the, with all the bands that I kind of got together, I, I wrote all the music. Um, so I'd, I'd already had this, most of the songs or most of the riffs written um, and then formed the bands. Uh, and, th and that was it. There, there wasn't really anything prior to that. So how did Freudian Slip come together as a band then, Dale? Um, I knew, well, my first wife, uh, her brother was a, a, a massive uh, Mark Boland fan. Um, and both the singers that we had were actually friends of Barry's, who, who, who was her brother. So we, we had the singer, um, the drummer. Well, originally it was Bill. I don't know where I met Bill. I've got no idea where I met Bill. Um, but it was, again, it, it's all intertwined because Bill was in Sister Ray with Johnny Marr. Um, and he actually introduced me to Johnny Marr, but we, we had Bill. Um, Lee was a bass player who was, I think, was a was a friend of the singers and David who eventually joined us on keyboards and eventually he ended up with uh, Pete Shelley um he he'd actually lived in the apartment with me because he was the boyfriend of Kath who was the secretary of the MMC so <laughs> it really was a, a very incestuous music scene <laughs> <laughs> Um, just just thinking about Freudian slip in your book, you give a brilliant description of one of the biggest shows that you played at the Deeply Veil Festival. Oh yeah, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah. Can, can can you share a little bit about that that festival? It was um, originally, I perceived it as a very hippieish festival because, and again, because of the bands they had on, you know, it was that crossover time between between the sort of hippie type bands and the punk bands and to, to be honest the hippies were quite welcoming considering that there was a bit of animosity there between punks and hippies because oh, oh we don't like that music that music's in the past da, 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 da. but no they, they, they welcomed us with open arms and it was just this this is the field and a big stage and Fried egg barn cakes, which which I absolutely loved. Um, <laughs> Great. No, seriously, seriously, that's what I, that's what I remember <laughs> the most. <laughs> it was the fried egg barn cakes because they just taste so so much better when you're in a field of music uh, from a from a, a greasy catering van. Uh, I think we we were on the same time as uh, Mark Hoyle from Vibrant Thigh because um, I know that he played that night as well, um, and it was just. It was a big gig, you know. It was a big thing to play, and it was a, obviously it was North Manchester. So again, we were crossing the border, you know, in the back of a van. It, it was like a raiding run almost. Yeah, will we get back alive? You know. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, for for a band that had been playing pubs, it was it was a proper stage. It, I mean, it wasn't massive, 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 but it was big enough for all of a sudden. For you to to sort of look around and think, oh, where's the singer? You know, there was that yeah, distance yeah. distance between you that you'd never really got on a smaller stage because you're all you're all there, you're all huddled together, and then suddenly you're you're looking around thinking, oh, oh where they gone? Um, it was yeah, it was it was a, a memorable place, and it was again, it was it's just one of those things that I don't think would happen now. I really can't see it happening now. 
did it feel like you'd kind of arrived to some to some extent when you were on the stage playing at this festival? It did because, again, like um, uh, I suppose a little bit like modern festivals, you're on with people, you're on with bands that you'd actually heard of that actually had LPs out. I think it was Steve Hillage or someone. I, I can't, I can't, really can't remember who we were on with apart from they had this sign like a flying teapot and I've got no idea, but there were people back then that had, had, had definitely had multiple albums out. Yeah, I think you mentioned, I think you mentioned people like the Rats and the Fall and, and John Cooper yeah. Clark. The thing is that they, um, they were still quite small. I mean, even, even John Cooper Clark and, uh, and the Fall were, they weren't major artists like, like these other bands that were on. Um, and it was, you know, to be on the same stage as them was, it was quite something. It, it was quite inspiring. You, uh, you mentioned, you mentioned the punks and the hippies and there's a, there's a lovely quote in your book. You said, um, I didn't dream of becoming a rock star. That would have been a demeaning and derisory term at the time. The whole star process felt to have been dismantled by punk. Just thinking about that, how did you, how did you fit into the punk scene and, did you think it had an, you know, had an immediate and a lasting effect on you? Yes, it did. It did, because because all of a sudden you could do anything. You, you really could do anything. Um, to think that you could just pick up a bass and you can form a band and you can play Deeply Vale or you can play the pubs or you you can do this without any any form of training just just practice just practice and practice and you had no idea if your songs were any good or not you really all you knew in your heart was that you like playing them and you like listening to them and other people seem to like listening to them but not in the millions just maybe a handful (laughs) (laughs) but it kind of sets you up for the rest of your life because then you feel well almost anything's possible i know or it's getting into a bit i have a dream kind of but no it's it shows you that things are possible because of, because before punk, it was a really, you could never dream of, of releasing an LP or something. You just couldn't get into the music scene. It really wasn't, it wasn't open to people like me and people like the other people of Manchester. I think, it, you know, I couldn't apply for a job in Genesis because I wouldn't get it. There's no point. <laughs> this is what I mean. It's, it was it was really, it was just so closed. It was closed. Um, yet it was forced apart and forced open by the birth of punk, which which said, yeah, you can pick up a guitar and you can play and people will come and watch you. Um, and it was only, really, it was only for a short period because all, all the bands that made it, eventually kind of it closed the hole up behind them really <laughs> um not for quite a few years but then then other bands did appear you know and it was try- it was hard to figure out with some bands how on earth they did appear and and uh, they didn't seem to tread the boards and, and and work the same as we did um but i think that was because well i probably i wasn't into music uh, 10, 15 years down the line. So I probably just thought that they just appeared, even though they've been gigging for years. We've had a, we've had a lot of opportunity to talk to people that have been around and influenced by punk and part of the scene. And um, it seems to be very much that the, the attitude rather than the 
you know a strict musical code that the attitude is what people took forward with them in terms of like you were describing that it opened things up and the opportunity and lots of people kind of have carried that through with them beyond the strict confines of you know what punk became after a uh, you know in terms of the music after a short period of time yeah i think they did i think it set a lot of us up for further even if you weren't working in the creative field just for life just just to feel oh well you know i can i can do that and you look at i mean you look at people like linda that, that did the buscocks uh, uh sleeve i mean she's still you know she's still producing artwork and she's now quite well known as an artist but back back then there was it wasn't just the musicians there were the, there were people that were writing there were people there were there were graphic designers there, there were creative people uh, and fashion fashion as well all within that that punk scene that that broke out and they made careers out of it it it, it i can't see it happening again i really i, I just but that's what happens when you get old is you can't see, actually see what's happening um but it was it was a fantastically creative time and it was a time of opportunity which i don't think the kids today God, i shouldn't say the kids today but i don't think they've got you know you've got to remember that most of us were on the dole and we didn't have to look for jobs it wasn't like now where you you have to say oh look i've applied for 30 jobs this week we just all we had to do was get up and sign on once a week and we got money and that enabled us to pay our rent to get food and to create stuff rather than nowadays where, where that it's a cliche this blue sky thinking or whatever but it's not there anymore that i mean i left school at 16 and i could sign on straight away and you know people say oh you shouldn't say you shouldn't work and sign on but that's what we all did and we didn't work like in fact you know doing stuff we got paid for we worked crafting what we did being creative supporting other people that were also creative and that that's what led to i think that's what led to the society that we had maybe even 10 years ago i mean it's going down now for sure yeah but nowadays because people are they're not able to do that you're not able to sign on and go and play a bass for seven nights a week or learn how to draw comics or anything like that because they're constantly mithering them telling them to go and find jobs but if you know that there aren't any jobs it's a waste of time it's a waste of time them going out they should just be doing other stuff there you go that's my little political political rant over um, well here here as well yeah yeah too right too right yeah well, just thinking about about um, career choices and stuff, and quite early in your career, you became involved with engineering and working in a studio. What do you remember about those days and and some of the bands who came through the doors? Yeah, um, I started off in a studio called Decibel, which, getting back to my last point, I wasn't paid to work there. I it was a, that that old thing of being a tape operative, but if I wasn't signing on. I wouldn't have been able to afford food and I wouldn't have been able to skill up in a recording studio, but it enabled me to do that. Um, so yeah, I started as a tape op and then the next step is generally you're allowed to mic up, mic up a drum kit or something like that, which is, which is quite exciting for your first, 
you know, your, your first time in a studio and you've got all these microphones, you can mic the kit up. You get to use the the, the big uh, multi-track tape machine. Uh, you, you clean the head. So you're allowed to basically you hang around. And if if you've got the drive and if you've got the interest, generally you can work your way up quite quickly. Um, so at Decibel, because Decibel was quite close, it was Beehive Mill, quite close to the city centre. A lot of bands kept their gear there when they were gigging because they had storage rooms as well so they'd finish gigging at, at one o'clock in the morning they'd come back with the gear to decibel and i basically slept there because i let them in so all the time you're with these people that are so full of adrenaline because it, it doesn't matter where they were playing they, they absolutely loved it and they came back and they, they were bouncing off the ceiling they were they, you, that and you get kind of caught up in that it's nice to be around people that are so positive and and so full of life and really enjoying what they're doing so even at two or three o'clock in the morning um so but eventually yeah i mean who did we have we had carmel uh we had sister ray which is where i met bill uh flag of convenience which is steve diggle he rehearsed there a lot um and of course, there were, there were artists that recorded there as well. The actual owner of Decibel, uh, Philippe Philippe Delclot, was a French professor at uh, UMIST, and he was a really—he's—I I mention him because he is one of the unsung heroes. He helped a lot of people out, even though he probably didn't realise he was helping people out. But he's such a sweet guy. He was a really nice person. Um, he had his own dreams. He wanted to be. Uh, he wanted to win Eurovision as a French entry. <laughs> so he was always, that's why he'd set up a studio to record his own stuff. <laughs> we all have these dreams, you know. And, but the, the the result of that, the result of that were the hundreds of bands that passed through and, and, and formed and met each other because there were, I think there were three rehearsal rooms there as well as a studio. Uh, and they all met. And it, it was, it was really, paramount in, in the formation of the Manchester music scene. Um, but you very rarely hear anything about him these days. Do you know if he did get the Eurovision? No, I don't think he did. No, I never, I didn't hear from him again. I did meet his wife once because uh, she owned a bar in Chalton. Um, <laughs> but this is about 20 years, 20 years after the event. I don't know what Philippe's doing now. But again, he, he was a nice guy. I think he was he was too nice, to be honest. <laughs> and was it was it a decibel where you met Johnny Marr for the first time then, Dale? Yeah, it was because Sister Johnny was in a band with Bill uh, called Sister Ray, um, and again they they were quite impressive because they supported Adam and the Ants. So again, it's that. Oh, hang on, this this band are bigger than most of us because they're, they're supporting adam and the ants um but they, they split up and bill came to join us and uh johnny 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 then went on to form freak party with uh with andy so they were still rehearsing at decibel i'm recording at decibel so i'm i knew johnny because obviously bill was the one in between the two of us he was the introducer um so that's where i met Johnny and Andy. Which, well, I suppose that lead, that leads us on to to talking about how you were the original bass player in the Smiths, and um, 
recorded and played on the band's first two demos, um, which you posted up on YouTube recently. Um, What's the experience of listening to those songs like for you now with so much time having passed and also with you having written the book? It's it's kind of, (laughs) wow, it's really hard to answer because because, um, two of the tracks became so well known and you're, you're listening to them in the raw state and it brings back the memories of rehearsing them and playing them. But at the time, I, I couldn't see it. I couldn't see how, uh, not the, well, almost the genius of it, the, the, the genius of the, of the lyrics, which I didn't even know what the lyrics were. You know, mm. you, you take it for granted. And my career path was definitely going to be in, in studio, as a studio engineer and producer. It wasn't going to be as a bass player. But when I listen back to them, I just think, oh, it's, they are good songs. But they were so different from everything else that was happening at the time that it didn't really register how good they were. Um, mm. And it's, it's nice to have that. It's nice to listen back, and, and it does bring back memories. And you appreciate the craftsmanship of the songs because at the time I really didn't. I, I just, you know, there were bands that I thought would have were much better than the Smiths were at that time. Um, it's it's just it's one of those weird things where where you're in the middle of it and you don't recognise what's actually happening, especially if you're focused on something else. If you're focused on something completely different. We were, we were talking before you came in tonight and have having very much a similar conversation. So it's uh, it's good to to hear you say that. There's a there's a lovely moment in the book where you describe um, Johnny Marr playing you the sort of first recordings from a Tascam Porter studio. I just you know to be there at that moment would be to be a fly on the wall would be a very you know interesting thing. What's your recollections from from that? Well. The, the first, um, he did that from, he lived he lived in a house in Bowden that was owned by Shelley Rhodes, who, who was a Grenade. Again, it, it's kind of interwoven. Uh, my dad was a, a cameraman at Grenada, and Shelley Rhodes worked for Grenada. She was a presenter. And Johnny lived in, a, in, in her house. I think she, he was friends with a brother, with, with, sorry, with her son. So I went down... Um, to Bowden and he, did, he had this like a uh, Porter studio um but the first track he actually played was uh, I Want a Boy for My Birthday that was that, that was the cassette I took away that day to write the bass line to and it sounded yeah you know we'll, we'll give this a go um again <laughs> it's kind of people, people think it must be awe-inspiring but it was really it, it was it was just three teenagers <laughs> yeah. you know yeah and yeah, I knew Johnny had been uh, had supported, been in a band that supported Adam Ants. But because I worked in a studio and I, I was producing music, I didn't feel inferior to either of them. Um, mm. uh, and Stephen, again, I, I knew it. I think by that time he'd written a book about the New York Dolls, but I don't know whether it had been, I, I don't know whether, how well known that was. Um, 
and I, I, I think it, there's something about the Coronation Street bit. And so I asked my dad if because my dad worked in Coronation Street, and he had heard of Stephen Morrissey, but it was somebody completely different. Somebody that did work for Bernard. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. um, so there was this, there was this link anyway, because I, I kind of knew Shelley a little bit. Uh, again, going back to to part of the history was that, uh, that my mother died when within about a week of me being born. But my dad was eventually worked as a cameraman, and childcare wasn't what it was. So I used to hang around the green rooms and Granada Studios quite a lot. Uh, so I got I got to know these people. Not not, not like you know go for, not like you'd go for a pint with someone, but you, you just notice them around. And when you're a kid, adults tend to talk to you more. They feel a bit sorry for you, or they feel that they have to talk to you. Because what's this kid doing, wandering about? Um, so yeah, so we're at her house. Uh, they played that. We discussed, basically discussed the image for the band, what we were going to do. And at that time, it did feel like it was three of us. Eventually, after about four or five months, it was obvious it wasn't. It was two of them and a, and a bass player. <laughs> um, but at that time, it definitely felt like it was the the, the kind of the formation of a, of a band that, that would be equal. Everybody in the band would be equal. It didn't, it, because I wouldn't have gone back if I felt like, I was just a spare part because I, that, that's not what, what I was into. You, you know, uh, all the bands had been in, I'd, I'd written the songs um, and it, it didn't feel like that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, that's when I got the cassette for uh, I Want a Boy for My Birthday. Um, I, I mean, the descriptions that you, that you paint in the book of, of that time are really, really vivid and, and really enjoyable to read. And I would urge people to, to, to seek the book out and 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 um, read that stuff, but when it came to the point of being sacked from the band, I mean, it, it's fair to say you were treated shockingly. <laughs> um, but you said at the time, and you've said tonight that it didn't have a huge impact on you. That in many ways your primary focus was on being a studio engineer. Um, yeah. And at the time you were you were you were actually recording Nico around that time. Yeah, so, I, which is again somebody who's you know must have been a really big influence on you as well. Oh, it was. It was. This was like this to to meet someone that had known Lou Reed and been in the Velvet Underground was it was just out of this world. It really, it, you, and, it, and you think, why is she in Manchester? <laughs> you know, it's it's bizarre. It, it's almost like meeting meeting someone like in a little Ukraine village, you think, what the hell are you doing here? Um, because uh, uh, by that time, we'd opened Spirit Studios and Spirit was used by New Hormones. So there's all those sort of people coming in, 808 State, people like that. And they weren't with New Hormones, but the, it, it was a city centre studio, which I don't think there were any other city centre ones. I mean, Decibel was close. But it wasn't city centre, whereas Tariff Street was city centre. It was, uh, it, it was, um, it was next to, it's still quite close to Piccadilly. I mean, I don't know what's the, what there is now. I know there's a coffee shop called Tack, but I don't know what else is there. Uh, but yeah, Spirit Studios, and on the steps on the after rehearsal, Johnny just said, "Oh, we're, we're parting ways," and I genuinely. I need to mention here that I've got Asperger's, so I don't quite pick up on facial things. I genuinely thought he just wanted to rehearse somewhere else, because maybe because I think at the time when we were rehearsing there, I'd often get 
have to interrupt it to go out and deal with something because I was a partner in the studio. So if something was going on, I needed to go and deal with it. And I thought it, was, it just meant we're going to practice somewhere else. It took a while for it to sink in. Um, and I, I don't, I really don't understand why he just didn't say, oh, we're, we're replacing you. The way he said it to me just implied that we we're going to rehearse somewhere else. Um, and that was, that was the point when, yeah, okay, fine. Because I still couldn't see that they were going to be a major band. So uh, just mentioning uh, Nico as well, um, what was the cr sort of the process you were involved in there? What were you creating? I was just engineering. I wasn't producing New Hormones. I was with their own producers. Um, she was recording at, at Spirit. I, I'm not sure if it was a demo or, or whether it was released. Um, but it was it was a mere fact to be in the same building as her. It was, it was something else. Um, yeah, um, I really can't remember even what, to, what what track she was recording because there was there was so much coming in and out. There were so many people coming in and out. Um, and it was, it's like, just incredible that she was in in the middle of Manchester, to be honest. Yeah, there's I mean there's love there's a lovely description earlier in your book about how the how you came to the Velvet Underground, how they won the sort of important bands after you'd sort of decided that bass was really for you, and then coming to the Velvet Underground and kind of working your way into their music quite early on. It sounded like. Oh yeah, I listened. I listened to the Velvet Underground quite early. I know I said I was into Elton John, and it was kind of at that time also uh, the Velvet Underground. Um, and it's it's really only when I listen to stuff thirty years ahead, like recently, that you really start to pick the bass out. It, it was kind of a subliminal thing where I didn't notice the bass like I notice the bass now, but the bass the bass playing was was superb. Absolutely superb, um, and the darkness and the jangly guitar and the, it, it was it was incredible. I still think it's still incredible. It's still you listen to that and you just think, well, what a time to be alive. To be honest, one of the lines in your book uh, that really resonated with, with us is uh, you speaking about the assumption of clear. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote it back to you: clear and incontestable differences between those that make it and those that don't and the idea that talent will always prevail is a misconception do you have specific people or artists in mind when you wrote that yes um there's a band that i really liked called marine escape um and i thought they were incredible i recorded them i thought the singer had a fantastic voice now apparently the singer and one of the apparently they're still playing. And I, I had no idea because I didn't know the names of the people. But when the book came out, they contacted me and said, oh, you know, we're still playing. So I, don't know, I, I, oh, wow. I didn't have a clue. Um, and they were talented. You know, there, there are a lot of very talented people, a lot of really good singers um, that I used to record. I, I probably need to point out that overnight at Decibel, I would record bands for free, for look, absolutely free, because I wanted to learn how to do it. So I recorded an awful lot of music, an awful lot of bands, um, and Marie Escape were one of those. And I think they then actually paid for a session at Spirit. Um, so they they were kind of one bands. But again, now I mean, even artists now that 
you think these are absolutely incredible artists, but they don't get the recognition. Or maybe they do. the thing is, you know, I'm almost 60 now, and it may be that they do get the recognition within their demographic that they're actually trying to perform to, and I just don't realise it because because I'm not within that anymore. It, it, I, it, I can no longer be objective about about things I hear these days because I don't know whether maybe they are huge like Keaton Hansen like is he huge is he not he's a fantastic artist and there's an Australian uh, Julia Jacklin I don't know if you ever heard yeah 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 absolutely but I don't know whether I don't know whether everybody's heard of her and they're going what are you talking about of course she's made she's a major star or whether it's just that I don't know the major stars but again, these are incredibly talented people, and you hear you hear some music, and you think, oh no, it's to me a lot of music is like is like the music that I used to listen to in the Ukraine, which is, is Euro pop. It's music. It's music by numbers. It's music by you know. I, I, really, a, a computer could write the song because it's just little bits from every other songs, and and there's a pattern. And they develop the pattern and over it, and then there's always a little standout bit of a uh, chorus of uh, 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 almost like a hymn part or something. Uh, it, for me, it just doesn't do anything. When you when you weigh up the sort of creative buzz of recording music against making and writing and playing music, how how does that balance out for you, Dale? Oh. It's quite hard. <laughs> it's very hard to persuade a band. You mean as an engineer and a producer? Yeah, yeah so the, the buzz yeah, you get I mean, from being an engineer against the buzz you get from being uh, writing, writing in a band. Um, I'd say it was almost equal for me, except that when I was writing music, I could see it from the musician's point of view, but from an engineer and a producer, it's hard to argue with a band that something's wrong because it's almost like saying you've got an ugly child it's really you've really got to be and i'm not very subtle um because they always wanted to play around with the mix and and they, they wouldn't understand that the mix again it's quite arrogant to say the mix wasn't right because it's only my version of the mix really their version of the mix is what they should get but very often i would mix it for them and they'd take away the cassettes and they'd take away the quarter inch and I'd do my own mix and I'd give that to them two or three weeks later. And people would kind of say, oh, yeah, yeah, we do look, we did quite like the mix you did. <laughs> because this, 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 it's not a deafness that sets in, but when you're in a, in a control room, you've heard it so many times that you stop listening to it, you stop hearing it. You need to hear things. It's like if, um, if you're tasting, if you're tasting coffee, if you're tasting food, you need to have some water in between to, to, to get that taste back again. And you need a break. And of course, when people book studios, they book it by the hour. They don't book it generally the small, you know, the, the bands that are playing for demos will book six or seven hours and they'll want a complete, they, they want to walk out of there with a completed item. They, they don't want to come back in three weeks and have another bash because they haven't got the money. I can understand why, why they don't want to do that. But if you've listened to something for seven hours, especially on studio monitors, um, it sounds completely different when you get it get it home. Um, but the creative process, I guess, 
was really only complete for me when when I could then sit down and, and remix it myself and, re and really really enjoy it. You know, when I wrote the book, I had to almost I, I could spend hours, uh, and it wasn't regression in the hypnosis sense, but sometimes I used to have to just put headphones on and just play. I've got an awful lot of music from the bands that used to record, um, not just my stuff. And to get back into that time zone, I tend to just listen to the music uh, in, a, in a darkened room. And that it really helps. You know, they will say you, you know where you are, you know, when you hear a first, when you hear some music for the first time and that music really affects you. you it's good. So I used to have this preparation of, of listening to the to, to the older stuff to put me back in that time so that I could actually remember properly and actually write, uh, write the book. I think you, you're absolutely right that music is so located to time and place and people you're with and time in your life, isn't it? It's so it's, it's profoundly affecting in that way. And the way yeah. that the way that listening to a song will take you back to that specific moment in time. Oh, well, it's like, it's, it, it's, it's like the sense of smell, you, you know, if you smell something for the first time, it takes you back and you smell it decades in the future, but it's a very, it's a, almost unique smell it will take you back and it's the same with music you remember when you hear something for the first time um because it, it imprints itself upon you and that's that's a useful way to claw your way back into the past because memories are, you know memories aren't, aren't great well maybe they are great my, my memory is fading a little bit um but you can claw your way back by listening to to, to music of that that time uh, an element of your past is something that I guess you're you're asked to speak about quite often. You know your time in the Smiths. Um, how important do you think it is to stay connected to experiences like that? Not just the Smiths, but you, you know the com sorts of conversations that we're having now. How how important do you think it is to stay connected to uh, previous versions of yourself? I think it's very important. I think it. I think it teaches you to be more compassionate and more understanding. Um, I'm more tolerant of different people that you meet because, you know, I think back and I think, what a twat. I, I, I you know, I wasn't a great, it sounds like, you know, like it's, it's some sort of one of those meetings where, but I really wasn't a great person back then. Um, I had redeeming features, but it wasn't like I was now, but, you can think back and think, well, you know, I changed gradually and you can meet people and you can apply the way you used to be and think, well, you know, everybody's a bit different. Um, so I think it's re it, it is really important to connect with what you were and to use that as a projection onto other people now. Because then it, it enables you to, especially again with Asperger's, it, it enables you to to become closer and, and have more empathy with somebody if you can see a little bit of, you know, they might have really annoying habits and you think, about, well, I had annoying habits and people put up with me. It just, it just teaches you that more than anything else. How old were you when you got your diagnosis, your Asperger's diagnosis? Uh, 
I'm just thinking how old I am. I must have been around about 40. I was in Australia. I was diagnosed as an adult the way most people, most adults are diagnosed, which is that they take their children because they don't know what on earth's wrong with the kids. So they take the kids and eventually they'll end up with somebody that, that is good at recognising Asperger's. And then they'll look at, you know, they'll say, well, it's genetic. And then with me, he just stared over at me and said, well, there's your answer, you know. Um, so, yeah, I was about 40. And prior to that, I'd been diagnosed as a, as a paranoid schizophrenic when I was about 16, 17. I ended up in Withington Psychiatric Hospital. Later, when I started to think about it, a, a schizophrenic is, is back then, it was just it was an it was just an envelope to that you shoved everything in that you couldn't diagnose. If you couldn't diagnose it as a schizophrenic, stick it in that. We'll give him a label. We'll we'll give him antidepressants. We'll do this, and then we're we're seen to be treating the problem, um, even though it's a. But over here, I mean, I was diagnosed as I say in Australia. Over here, I went when I went through a, a kind of a little bit of a bad phase. I went to see a psychiatrist and they they said, no, no, you were married at, at 17. You couldn't possibly have Asperger's because they don't form relationships. But what they didn't realise was that the person that married me was five years older and she was quite predatory. You know, it's not a tick box scenario. Was that tough with that information, with your diagnosis? Was that going back and and reviewing your whole life across the course of that book was that difficult at times to kind of to see it through a different lens yes yes it is difficult um and people i think i think mark who edited the book got in touch with people most of them said uh they were quite kind but they said i had challenging personality um uh, it gives it gives an explanation of of behavioural traits. It doesn't excuse them because there's, for some things that you know there are no excuses, but it gives an explanation. And yet I'm not the, the worst thing you can do is to say, oh, this is the reason why. This is the reason why. No, no you need to. You, you can't make excuses like that. You can reflect on them and you can try and change your future by recognising what was wrong with the past. But you, you can't just, you know, a, a diagnosis of anything, of, of, of any mental disorder, really should be used to help you in the future, not, not excuse bad behaviour in the past. If that, does, that make, does that kind of make sense? It's, it does. Uh, it does make sense. Yeah. And, and there's a bit, it, there's a, well, there's a few sections in your book where you talk very openly about um, mental health and about, um, your struggles with that, and that, and there's some there's some moving descriptions of you finding yourself again through music is how you, how you describe it. Um, so where did you go and what brought you back? I had what would be described as a as a nervous breakdown, a mental breakdown, when my marriage ended, um, and I went to I actually went to Prague um, because I'd never been to Prague and. I needed to be somewhere where there were no reminders of my past. I needed to be somewhere where I didn't understand the language. I needed to be somewhere where I was completely isolated 
but with enough people around to stop me throwing myself under a bus. Not not that people would stop you throwing, but you know what I mean? There's, you can be isolated and you can be alone in a major city, especially so if you've never been there. You don't recognise the writing. You don't you speak the language. Nothing is familiar to you. And for me, that was one way of, of easing myself out of that really quite severe depression. It, you know, I, when I used to come back, there was one time when I ended up with a with a hosepipe and and a, some gaffer tape in the in the back of my car. Quite convinced that that night that that, that had been my last night. Um, so it was it was that, and I constantly listened to to music there. Um, and I spent a lot of time with. Sorry, it's not a charity, but it sounds like a charity. I spent a lot of time with homeless people, even though I had a hotel room. And it wasn't, I didn't understand the word they were saying. I was trying to see why they wanted to live. It sounds really weird. But they had nothing. They had absolutely nothing. And there's quite a, a lot of homeless people in Prague and I was in the city centre. And I wasn't with them, like, you know, drinking. You know. I was just observing them. I was just sat on the bench. What? I'm, I'm trying to figure out why, what, what gives them the momentum to carry on when they've got nothing. So that was all part of the process of, of trying to figure out really what, why we live. What, what, what's the point? Because at that time there wasn't a point. I'd lost, I'd lost everything as far as I was concerned. And I think it, when you suffer from depression, well, not suffer. I hate using the word suffer. When you live with depression, because depression almost, almost certainly makes you creative when you come out the other side of it. When you live with depression, it's it's it kind of it. As soon as something happens, it can claw its way back up to the surface again. Since that time, I've been able to recognise when it's approaching and self-medicate near enough. I mean, for, again, you don't want to say to people, "Oh, you you need to drink a lot," but I know that if I drink a lot, when I feel depression coming on, I'll get out the other side. Everybody has their own way of self-medicating. It's more important that they figure out what their way is, even if that way is slightly damaging, than allowing the depression to completely take hold. You're going to live longer if, even if you're doing something that is like, you know, whatever you want to do to, to get out of that scenario. You talk really, really brutal with brutal honesty, Dale. I mean, you are talking with brutal honesty at the moment and also in your book. And, you know, you said you've said in the book that suicide was something that you considered to be an option at times. Uh, it sounds like your experience in Prague was the moment that you took that off the list and walked away. It walked in a different direction. Yes, it was. And again, it sounds really grand, but I also, I've sent it to people since then that I was actually reborn in Prague. I became a very, very different person. And I think the reason for that is, this, this is just my view, there's no science behind it whatsoever, is that when you hit such a low and you come out of it, I think your brain is actually re rewired to an extent. I have to give a scientific explanation rather than a, than a religious one, because I'm not religious. I think the effect it has on your brain is that it, completely, it rewires it. And for me, for me, Prague will always be home. It's, it's, it's not Manchester anymore, it's Prague. Um, 
and it was it's just a combination of, of what happened there i met my, my current life there um and the feeling of being somewhere so alien yet so be- it's a beautiful city so beautiful um it, it completely changed me it changed me absolutely changed me and where does music fit into that transformation i used to well i used to play a lot of music through headphones or wandering around with headphones um but again people i think people will query why you listen to bands like joy division when you're depressed and for me it was taking me back to a time when i was happy it sounds really odd because everyone says oh yeah yeah you know you you listen to joy division and it, it makes you do well, it didn't to me it, it made me think of a time when i was younger and before it was a time that was prior to all the pain that i was experiencing so it takes you back through that and i think that music brought me back out again um i've constantly just just listened to to joy division uh and quite a lot of placebo as well for some reason because i've never even i've not really followed followed them but i found their music quite quite good to listen to very loud all, all the songs had to be very loud to drown out the thoughts in your head um and since then of course music still plays a huge role the, when uh, we kept we we came back to the uk we opened coffee shops and restaurants and the playlist for me is it is as important as the selection of beans for the coffee it's it's absolutely paramount which is why we're not open now because if i can't please people with music and coffee if it, uh, i don't want to be open <laughs> do you do you yearn to get back and be playing and making music or recording music as well no not at the moment no no i did do i played again in prague i don't know whether i mentioned it in the book but we did play my wife's a violinist and we did play in prague and i enjoyed that an awful lot and i've still got a bass here but i'll very rarely pick it up very rarely pick it up uh and Svet, with a violin, she, she to be a good violinist, she she it's not like a bass where you've got frets and, and it's very easy to play. She's got to practice four or five hours a day to to, to be any good, and she she's not had that time. I've not been inspired really to make music, um, to play music, but what I am inspired by is is selecting songs for the cafe and knowing that. For an awful lot of people in there, that'll be the first time they've heard that track, and it'll introduce them to new artists, and it'll introduce them to new music. I love that. It's I great. really love that. I love yeah. that 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 the the music is the selection of music is as, as important as the selection of beans for the coffee. It's well, so it's so great. It really is. I can't. It's it's creating that that ambience and that atmosphere. You know, it's it's yeah. It's personal, like the like the. It's really personal, but people get on board with it, and people come in and they all comment on the on on the music. Because you know what you're doing with both <coughs> of those things. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dale, there's a there's a really moving quote in the epilogue of your book, which I hope you don't mind us reading. It said, "I've had a wasted life. I've sought more. I should have sought more pleasure to counteract the misery." I would urge anyone in a similar position, find what makes you happy, pursue it, take risks to make it happen. And I would say that having read your book, it feels like you've done your best 
to follow your own advice in the face of a, a great deal of adversity and personal challenge. Does that, would you say that, that you agree with that? I'd agree with the statement. I spent an awful lot of my life doing things for other people, which is generally how I, which is now why I can say on reflection, you know, don't be selfish, but find the things that give you pleasure. Um, f f pursue what you need to pursue because, you know, when I was young, I thought, oh, it's all right. When I'm older, I, I can travel. Um, well, I can't travel now, obviously. And you, you think you'll always be physically fit and it creeps up on you. And you also think, oh, I can eat lots of chocolate when I'm old. Well, I'm diabetic now, so I can't. You know, that those, those things that you think you imagine when you're old, you can you can drink bottles of whiskey, you can eat chocolate, you can do this. You can... But you can't. You know, you wear your body out. Um, do it while you're young. And and the, the key thing, all right, that, that was a bit of, you know, that wasn't that important to eat chocolate. But the key thing is that those experiences if I'd had the experiences when I was 20 that I had when I was 35 going on 40, my life would have been completely different, absolutely different. And when I'm referring to those experiences, I'm not talking about playing in bands. I'm talking about seeing people in different countries, seeing, you know, you have an idea about poverty, but until you go somewhere like the Ukraine in the villages, you really don't know what poverty is. You have an idea of architectural beauty, until, until you've been to some of those Eastern European places, it all changes. And the experiences you have and the people you meet change you if you allow it to. And don't just go for a week, go for a year. Actually live the life there and that will mould your life in your 30s and your 40s. I left it till I was 40. But if I'd have done it earlier, my life would have been completely different, absolutely different. Uh, so I'm saying, you know... And people, you know, I was saying to my daughter the other day, because she likes Prague, oh, I haven't got the money. You know, you don't need an awful lot of money to go to places like Prague, because what they're after there are English speakers. And they'll, if you go and work in one of the camps, they'll pay your pocket money, they'll pay your flights, you've got somewhere to sleep, and you, you're interacting pe with people, and you're, you're seeing life completely different. It doesn't cost an absolute fortune to do this sort of stuff. I think that's a great example of how you have kind of followed your own advice in, in a way and, and taken those uh, risks to make things happen. Um, I mean, whether they were kind of out of out of desperate necessity or not, you know, there's there's a there's a lot uh, in your book that sort of counteracts the idea of a wasted life. And I would absolutely urge people to read your book because it is a it's a fascinating read. Um, and, uh, and and it's been really great to to speak to you today and thank you so much for coming on the podcast dale oh, um, could we just close out with you introducing uh, introducing the song that people are going to hear now yeah so this is uh freudian slip and it's hideaway thanks dale thanks dale
nice to talk about it you know it's it's again it's it's reflective um and uh, the best thing is it's not all about smiths because people come in when we were open as a cafe here and they they, they want to talk about the smiths and it was only six months you know i've done so much so much more than that one guy flew across from cork he'd actually come across he got on the hollyhead ferry and he'd come in just to have his photograph with me and i'm thinking this is bizarre i thought oh this poor guy <laughs> and then then his wife and kids walked in and i thought well you dragged your wife and kids all this you're with this like like chubby old guy and you just want a photograph with you <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was just i couldn't understand that i can't i can't get that that level of fanaticism that people have because I don't know it's 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 weird it's really really weird that somebody would travel all that way just to have a photograph with me Um, it was only the one off I mean quite often people will but because they've read about it or something like that but this guy that actually made a real big effort to come across um, pilgrimage yeah pilgrimage to to what yeah I always feel I'm going to be a disappointment to them as well. And there's that, there's that, especially when his wife and kid walked in. You know, Christ, you know, you, you, can, you can have a better day out than a trip to Bangor, surely. Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced, and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production.